Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival. And we're still dealing with the pandemic, so for the time being, we'll have to keep connected virtually, even as we maintain our distance. We're broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. As always, I want to thank you for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. It's always a good idea to buy a book, and of course, you can't go wrong supporting local independent booksellers. Our spring season runs until early June, and it's all available online at writersfestival.org, so all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. Today, we'll hear a conversation between Kateri Quincy dam and Dr. Norma Dunning. Kateri, our host, is an educator at the University of Toronto. I'm a huge fan of her book of short stories, The Stone Collection. She served as Poet Laureate for Owen Sound and North Grey, and she is the managing editor of Kikadans Press, one of four established Indigenous-run publishing houses in Canada. Norma Dunning is a writer, scholar, researcher, professor, and grandmother who lives in Edmonton. She's the author of Annie Muktuk and Other Stories, which won the Danuta Gleed Literary Award and the Howard O'Hagan Award for Short Stories. Her latest collection, The Hina, The Unseen Ones, draws on lived experience and cultural memory in six powerful new short stories centered on modern-day Inuk characters. Here's their conversation, followed by a short taste of the prose. Ani, Norma, welcome to the Ottawa International Writers' Festival. It's wonderful to have the opportunity to speak with you. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. And uh, isn't it beautiful that through the use of Zoom, we can do this? (laughs) It is. Technology is wonderful sometimes. (laughs) Um, So this is your second collection of short stories that I want to talk to you about, uh, Da'ina. And I'm just wondering, what it, what is it about short stories that you're drawn to as a writer? I, you know what, um, I've had other people say to me, when are you going to write a novel? And the whole idea of writing a novel just seems way too big. <laughs> and so it's, um, you know, a short story is what I always, I always wrote poetry first and then short story second. So I, I think a part of it is where I'm comfortable. And um, and I think a short story makes me write better. So, I mean, I think about a novel, I think about putting together a novel, but uh, that's an idea that is somewhere in, fu- in the future. <laughs> like that's, that's in the future somewhere. Mm. So it's, um, and I've always enjoyed reading short stories, and uh, and so that that's that's just I guess something that I'm comfortable with. So it stays as a short story for now. <laughs> how how do you think it makes you a better writer? It forces me to it forces me to um, bring the event or the, you know, the ideations in, in behind each writing. It forces me to bring them in tighter and to, to put that message out there in a more concise, direct way. And, you know, so I don't 
put a lot of uh, time into writing landscape detail or, you know, because there are some writers that I've read, they're beautiful landscape uh, writers. And so I admire that, but it's, um, for myself, it makes me come to, come to the point of the story, I think, in a better way. Do you think there was anything different? Um, this is your second collection of short stories. Was there anything different in your writing process or your approach um, as compared to your first collection? You know what, I, I always think it's funny when people say, what is your process? So I always think, like, am I supposed to say something really genius right now? Or, you know, <laughs> unleash all this, this is how you do it. But it's, um, so I don't really have a writing process and that I can define. And this time, the stories were intentionally uh, centered around Inuit who live outside of the tundra. Because there are so many of us, there's closer, I think we're closer to 20,000 now that live outside of our land claim areas. And, and I think we get lost, you know, we get lost in the, in all of like in all of our indigenous Canadian lives and there's this idea that you know to really be an Inuit person you have to live in the north like in the north 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 of 60 and what I wanted to talk about this time were Inuit who live in the south and so it was very intentional to move everything outside of the land claim areas and to focus on, you know, urban Inuit life. I don't like, you know, that terminology of urban. I don't like that because, you know, to me, it kind of, it takes away from the genuineness or, you know, the um, essence of being Inuit when we start putting a word in front of and, but it was very intentional this time to, to write about Inuit in the South. Mm. Um, so I know the title Da'ina is, uh, it means the unseen ones. That's my understanding. Um, so it's interesting what you're saying because um, as I read it in the context of the stories in the collection, it doesn't only refer to the ancestors and spirit beings who do um, appear in some of the stories, but it's populated with characters who are unseen in, in many ways. And in some cases, being seen is actually what's dangerous. Am, am I reading that right? Yes, you are. Uh, thank you, Kateri, for you know giving it so much thought. I don't think all readers uh, have that kind of thinking, but it's, um, you know, like we're here and we're, living in the South and operating in the South, but we're often either seen as an oddity or we're not seen at all. And it's like you get, for myself, I've experienced it a great deal where my own authenticity is constantly under question. And I always think we don't do this 
to other Canadian people. We don't, for instance, and this is what I'll say when I'm lecturing, if, if I meet someone who says to me, I am a Dutch Canadian, I don't look at them and say, well, where are your wooden shoes? Like, you're not really a Dutch Canadian. You don't have on wooden shoes. But as Indigenous Canadians, we get those markers and measures, you know, given over to us in, in the oddest of spaces and in the weirdest of times where people are always questioning our authenticity. And if we are not fluent in what should have been our first language or our mother tongue, it's as though, well, then you don't measure up. And well, you're not living in the North, so you can't be a real Inuit person. And, um, you know, the common question of, you know, do you eat raw meat? That is said far too often. Mm. <laughs> and I often think like no other Canadian group, no other Canadian ethnic group gets questioned as much as Indigenous Canadians get questioned. And it's uh, in, in parts of this book, a lot of, you know, what happens in this book has happened to me along life's way. And, and I would just find it so odd, you know, and I would think, how, how do you even think you can ask that question? But people do. And I always, I always say, you know, I can disappoint people in under 90 seconds because <laughs> I, can, I can disappoint you three times in under 90 seconds because I am not fluent in Inuktitut. I do not eat raw meat on a regular basis and I do not live in the North. So it's like, I just watch people's faces become more and more disappointed. <laughs> mm. And then I think, well, that disappointment is on them. It's not on me, you know, and it, it takes, especially I think younger indigenous people, they really have to be able to learn how to own their indigeneity. And when they come up against people who, and I've been asked and been told, you know, your skin is too white. And um, what I've learned to say, back to people is, well, why do you think that? You know, what, what's in your imagination that allows you to think that way? And it's, um, it's my way of pointing out their own lack of information. <laughs> mm. And hopefully, like, it, it is not, you know, that kind of retort, or, and I don't say it in anger, but it's not often um, taken in as uh, as being, people get upset with it. You know, it's like now they're being questioned and, and they don't like it. And I can remember, oh, like this is a few years ago, I was at a social event and one of my friends came along with her man and I'd never met him before. And we say hello and sit down at a table together. And she gets up to get drinks. And after she's moved away from the table, this man who I had only seen for a minute and a half 
looks at me and says, your dad was white, right? And I said, I beg your pardon? And he said, well, your dad was white, right? <laughs> and I said, why does that matter? And, and so then he was uncomfortable. But I use that as an example of when you're just out and about and living your life, how people question Indigenous Canadians and, it, and the unfairness of it. So what I try to teach younger Indigenous people is own it, own it, and uh, ask them, how come you're thinking that way? So when I put together this collection, it was examining those kind of confrontations, you know, that, that happen to Indigenous and especially Inuit who are in the South because, you know, it's so unusual that Inuit live in the South, but it isn't. <laughs> mm. so it, was, um, it was thinking about all those things, you know, those kind of things that, uh, that I've seen happen to other Inuit or that have happened to myself and bringing this collection together. And hopefully in all of this, uh, people will, will just, you know, rethink how they think of Indigenous people. In, in what you're saying and um, what I found in the stories as well is that there's um, a talking back against what Daniel Heath Justice calls in uh, his book, Why Indigenous Literatures Matter, that whole deficiency narrative that gets placed on Indigenous people so often that we're, we're not enough of whatever. We're, as you say, we, we don't speak our language. We don't do this. We don't do that. We don't look the right way. We don't sound the right way. Um, and I, I found that throughout these stories that there's a kind of um, uh, confronting of that colonial perspective in many of the of the stories and so it seems to be an ongoing theme right yeah and so uh, you know and it's it, it, category we're in 2021 <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so why are why is this thinking of long ago placed on to indigenous canadians and I've had those discussions where people will say to me, well, you're not very traditional. Well, what do you mean by that? You know, like what is their thinking? And it's, um, it's, an, it's unfair. It's very much unfair. And in keeping that kind of long ago perception of Indigenous Canadians, we really are not allowing Indigenous Canadians to be modern day people. But, you know, like we do get up and go to work and we do get up and go to Tim Hortons and go swimming and uh, teach at universities and work as doctors and lawyers. And, but it's, um, it's that, that kind of modern day aspect to, in, towards Indigenous Canadians is almost non-existent. Mm -hmm. It's that constant questioning of tradition and authenticity. And, um, you know, they, it's as though we are never real enough. So when does that stop? When do, when do people stop placing those kinds of markers and measures 
onto all indigenous Canadians and, and take the time to know us as we are. Um, hmm. um, so many of the characters in the stories struggle with the impacts of colonialism, um, some of the ones we've been talking about, and families are fractured um, and themselves are locations of potential harm. Yet in the first story, there are two sisters um, who try after years apart to reconcile. What, what drives them despite their differences and their history to keep trying to reconnect? I think it's the same for all of us, how do we, with our family. I always say, you know, that as family, families will always fight. That's part of being a family. But in all of that, um, I think that, you know, that we do, we have this history of being little children together. And we only have that history really with our family members. And there is a bond that is established when we are very, very young. And regardless of how much time goes along and how much hurt may have been experienced, I believe that family always tries to come back together. And sometimes it works and sometimes it does not. But we, you know, when we're little children, when we're, you know, just being little girls or little boys, we, we have these memories of one another that no one else will have as we get older and as we go out into the world. And so we, we know each other when we were most vulnerable and most real before we have to go out there and start interacting in the world. And so bringing together these two sisters and a part of that writing is something that I have seen over and over again, where an Indigenous woman will think, you know, they've hit it once they're in with the white guy. And it doesn't mean that all, you know, all of these uh, Indigenous, non-Indigenous relationships, it doesn't mean they all do not work. But I have seen it repeatedly where it does not and where uh, where the, the woman in a relationship very much becomes a victim. And, and it's almost like being a victim by choice. But we always have to think about, especially for Indigenous women, where they are coming from. And, and, and I don't think we, we give that enough consideration. But when it comes to family, Kateri, we will always fight, but we will always love each other. And I believe that Indigenous Canadians have a strong bond towards family and the importance of it. It's interesting. I'm thinking about that story. <clears throat> and um, it seems that the, the sister who um, is in a relationship with, with a white man um, you know, she's obviously struggling in so many ways. And yet I think the narrator is also struggling in many ways, but maybe um, each of the sisters seems to be in their own silo. They can't kind of meet and find the empathy for each other. 
um, to, to recognize the pain that each of them is, is suffering. Um, and I think it's the same for the narrator and, you know, as well that, that, um, she's kind of not aware of her own pain that she's carrying. I think so too. And, um, you have to, you know, the thing about being family is, <laughs> and I don't know why we do this. And I laugh because, um, when I'm with my my own family and they're talking about an event that happened in a, in our growing up years, I always find myself sitting there and thinking, you know, I was there and I don't remember it like this at all. <laughs> and, and so yeah. I question their thinking and their memory, but we each carry memory in a different way. And I think that you know that we have these grudges <laughs> and I don't know why we carry them into adulthood and then into retirement <laughs> you know like we we're still carrying these you know mom liked you best and <laughs> and I don't know why we do that <laughs> but we do and so when we you know as we get older and in that story I talk about them playing in the basement you know and uh, and and the the one one sister getting injured and you know this sense of um, but I mean we're kids we're just kids goofing around in the basement and it's uh, I think those kind of incidents they stay with us somehow and so we have these these ridiculous grudges that sit within family. And what I've learned is, yeah, those grudges are never going away. <laughs> so mm. no matter what, we're just going to probably carry them into, an, into the grave. And um, But so you can see how, you know, that kind of relationship and, and when we're growing up, what happens and, and how, it, how it turns out, you know, when we get into our much older years. <laughs> mm. Um, it seems like many of the characters, um, the main Inuit characters, um, in so many ways are trying to escape. They're trying to escape their pasts or violence or broken marriages or the streets or poverty. Um, yet it, it seems like none are fully successful, although in various ways they all resist the situations that they're in and some find some kind of uh, conditional or partial or even an extreme way to get out of their situations. Um, is, is there an aspect of it that they, you know, um, that we can't really escape these uh, kinds of situations because of what we talked about earlier? Here we are in 2021 and we're still being asked questions about, you know, um, what we eat and why we dress the way we do and why aren't we more of whatever the expectation is? Uh, I think, you know, we have to, um, to me, the stories are about surviving and how we manage to survive in, in today's world with the expectations that are placed upon us. And so when I write about, you know, being homeless, when I write about being uh, a young girl who has her baby taken away without without question, you know, without even her input. 
um, like these are the issues I want people to think about. I want them to, to I don't think all the characters are, how do I say it? They're, they're not, they're not awful. And, and they do get through in some way. Mm -hmm. We forget that part of Indigenous people who are living on the streets, who are, you know, who are just um, trying to reassemble their life, you know, like, like Annie is doing in one of the stories. And how do we go about that? But to me, the, you know, the, the whole theme within that book is about survivance and that we're still here. And, you know, our biggest, our biggest act of resistance is that we're still breathing. <laughs> right. And, mm -hmm. you know, if, and if that bothers people, good. <laughs> <laughs> right. If that's all I have to do is breathe, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, so I, I was wondering, um, in reading the stories there there's um these spiritual experiences and beings that enter into the stories and I, i'm just wondering what um what part they play what what's the um what's their place within all of what we've been talking about uh, about how um inuit people survive and and move beyond survival to to um you know, those kinds of uh, renunciations of victimry and, and uh, you know, um, assertions of presence that Gerald Visner talks about in his, when he, he coined the term survivance. Mm -hmm. uh, well, my belief is this. Our ancestors never leave us. They're always with us or else we wouldn't be here. And I don't think that we just, you know, die and decompose and that's it. Mm -hmm. I believe that um, our ancestors are, are the ones who continue to hold us up and who continue to be with, with us in our, you know, in our day-to-day, -day, in our everyday kind of movements in life. And I think often, you know, we don't recognize that enough or give thanks to our ancestors enough and or recognize them as as being with us right now it's something you know that i think mainstream doesn't really want to hear about it or deal with it but it's something that i believe you know that they are you know my parents are still here with me and my ancestors from long ago are still here with me and to me, we cannot dismiss that spiritual side of our existence. And it's very, you know, I teach a lot of students who will say, well, I don't believe in this and that. And, and it's not so much about believing in or practicing a formal religion. It's about recognizing the importance of your ancestors and how they brought us here. So why would they bring us here and then disappear? They wouldn't, you know, they're always with us. And I hope people can, can read, you know, uh, Kunik and, and see how 
Grandpa Chevy, how he is just taking care of that grandson. And, and recognize and think about, well, why, why wouldn't their ancestors be doing the same? So that's what I hope. And I, I believe we all have a, a very spiritual side that we don't spend enough time with. <laughs> and we should you know, mm. take that time and, and really give thanks for to everyone who created this beautiful path that we are able to be on in this life. I think there's a tendency to think of um, that those ancestors are might be there for people who are, you know, practicing their spiritual traditions, but the homeless person on the street, that that's not there for them. Um, and yet the story is saying, um, what you know the the way we should all be thinking about it that those are the people who maybe need those kinds of supports and and interventions from our ancestors more than the you know than others or maybe not more but at least as much <laughs> put it that way um and yet we we forget we kind of um disconnect them from everything because of their current circumstances right and yeah. uh, and i think too though Kateri, i think to, for most people, that's the easiest route to take because you don't want to really have to spend a lot of time with yourself <laughs> thinking about thinking about uh, the spirituality that's been contained in in your lineage and what has brought you to now and who keeps you alive and keeps you going and. I know for me, I had a lot of hard times, financial hard times. But man, I would pray and there would be food and it would be amazing. <laughs> it would be amazing. So to me, we have to recognize that. And I think that's part of the um, disconnect that I can see in some people is it's almost like they're fearsome. You know, they're afraid to think about well why why wouldn't my mother still be with me you know like why why you know that and um and i hope and it's i think that you know we all have these wonderful spirits that protect us and take care of us and often we don't recognize it and i'm a person who never believes in coincidence so it's um I think people should think about it. And, and I hope, you know, that maybe reading Dania will give them that kind of space or that kind of time. Mm. So I, I'm wondering what you hope that Inuit readers in particular um, find in these stories or get from these stories. I hope that they're just proud of themselves. <laughs> I hope that they're, <laughs> that they're, you know, that, that they that they realize that you know you are recognized you do matter and and you're part of you know our all of our humanity and and, and that's what i hope that they, they take away from it i hope it's encouragement i hope that um that they can see that there is goodness and it's waiting for you, you know? It's it's um 
such a form of erasure when you when you don't see yourself reflected in arts and literature and and uh you know if if the portrayals that you do see are negative or or um like you said you know so-called urban inuit are you know just ignored or portrayed as kind of not as as Inuit as people in the North, that sort of thing. Uh, it seems to me that just this reflection of different Inuit experiences um, is so valuable for 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 everybody, but for Inuit people in particular. Mm-hmm. And like I always think Inuit overall as a as a population in Canada are left off like literally left off. And and I mean that in terms of government policy. I mean that in terms of food scarcity, in terms of um, having a 74% attrition rate in Nunavut and, and nobody recognizing that this is a crisis in our first world country and you know, it's um, we're just often left off, and I don't know if that has to do because our, our population is so small. So, is it that we're you know that we aren't big enough to get worried about? But we, you know, we have to think about the kind of conditions that Inuit live in the north, and you know, the out migrant um, numbers for Nunavut sit around 188 people a year. Hmm. So why why are Inuit leaving the North? They're leaving the North to look for work. They're leaving the North in hopes of their children having better access to education. They're leaving the North to, you know, to start out a new life somewhere. So we have to think about why does that happen? And then how come there's so little attention being paid to the people? But man, we are so worried about climate change. And I would like to to have the people and climate change to be given that equal attention. I don't Hmm. know what will happen, you know? And um, I think it's important that Inuit in in the South be able to see themselves in a writing in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what resources are there a few resources that you could recommend to your readers and to teachers who might want to um, have their students studying your work that would better help them to understand the stories um you know Kateri I can't think of anything right off the top of my head so if somebody was going to to teach Shania or Annie or Eskimo Pie, um, I think what I would have them do is to is to try not to think of it as fiction. Like try to think of it because I often think that as Indigenous writers, if we put or couch our disparities into a fictional story readers will take it in 
over having a scholarly article or book put together. And so what I would hope is that people would look at it as real life, not something that's been made up. And so often our stories are placed into the context of legend or myth. And when we do that, to me, we're delegitimizing the, the actual disparities that are, are happening right in front of us that we're not paying attention to. So I would ask that, you know, that the students look at it as real life and see how they can work that through. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. I really appreciate it. Um, you certainly gave me a lot to think about and the stories are, are uh, they're beautiful and, and they're hard to read at times and um, they're hopeful. So thanks for putting that out into the world for all of us. Oh, thank you, Kevin. I really appreciate having this little bit of time with you. Thank you so much. Before I let you go, Norma, would you be so kind as to do a reading for us from one of your stories? Thank you, Kateri. I'm going to read from a story called Bees Old Bone. And it's picking up on the life of Annie uh, many years later. And she has moved out of the north and is trying to reassemble her life in a small tourist town. And um, I'll just start here. But that one hot August day, she did something that she had not done in so many years. She walked into a British-style pub and ordered a Chardonnay. There were six large screens playing various sports, and the long counter at the bar was lined with the same people that frequented every bar she had ever seen in real life and on TV. The old men who were somehow nailed to their stools and stuck in the same place every day by three o'clock in the afternoon. The same men who had lived their lives inside of the same bar since their teens. Men who were her age or older represented problems, health problems that went on and on and never stopped, or money problems and the problems of retirement and what that would cost them, problems. That's all they were, problems. Men without erections who took their tiny pool of aging testosterone elsewhere to their bank accounts, to their workouts at the gym, to their tireless hours seated at bars talking about life in 1968. Men without testosterone who found power in persuasion. They lured in younger women and talked a good game until push came to shove. Then they shoved hard and real and knocked that woman square onto her ass and then sat back and claimed innocence, claimed misinterpretation, claimed that the woman had wanted what they had not, old men. Old men without charm, balding like weak eagles on a rocky cliff. Annie knew all that, knew that, knew what the old men, old white men were about. And she sat there and sipped her wine and thought about what to watch on Netflix that night. 
one man with a white goatee and an even whiter hat looked at her from across the bar, caught her eye and shouted, you are a remarkable looking woman. Annie grinned and looked down at the bar counter. He came close to her and introduced himself. I'm Alex and you are Annie. Annie, what a lovely name. Where are you from? Oh, up north, quite a distance from here. And where would that be? Churchill or someplace like that? You look native. Are you one of those, you know, what do we call them? Eskimos. Annie felt her shoulders start to tighten. She gave a half smile and a half nod. Really? Hey, fellas, look over here. It's an Eskimo. She knew not to interact, no matter what. Not with a white guy, and especially not with an old white guy. She let her breath out and held her head up a little higher. Like the football team, you mean, Alex? The bar burst into hard laughter. Peels of it slipped sliding everywhere. Annie saw the bellies of those white men jiggling like Mr. Claus. She saw their white beards ho-hoing and their blue eyes glittering like the stars on a Christmas tree. Annie saw what she always saw in white men. Annie saw hate. She turned her head away from the man named Alex and nodded to the bartender that she wanted to pay her bill. Oh, now don't run off said Alex, his white teeth lining the edges of his white goatee. Sit with me for a while and tell me about yourself. Now, what is it that they call you people nowadays? In you, at, in you, I, in you pants, shouted another of the barflies. And again, the room roared. Annie stared into his diamond eyes and shook her head. No. She was trying to get up from her stool when Alex put the fingers of his right hand into the small of her back. Annie felt the pressure on the base of her spine and she felt the snarl begin to rise from her throat. I'm leaving, Annie said barely above a whisper. I'm leaving. Oh, now you can't do that, dear Annie. Sit with this old gent and tell me the story of being an Eskimo in Canada. The one thing I want to know, do you really eat raw meat? Alex, those Eskimo women eat all meat, raw, red, and hard, shouted another of the barflies. And the laughter started to roll back and forth and up and down the counter again. Annie reached behind her back and grabbed Alex's fingers. She squeezed them together tight and sneered, you old white fuck, I'm leaving. Oh, now girl, you don't get to talk to me like that, exclaimed Alex as he reached for her waist with both of his hands, pressing hard into her stomach. There now, settle down, steady it a bit. Annie pulled Alex's hands off her belly and pushed her arms straight back as hard as she could. The tips of her elbows landed on Alex's ribs and she heard his breath pop out of him. She turned to leave while a man in the bar started to hoot and holler, you got a live one, Alex, ride him, cowboy. 
She felt Alex's hand pull on her right arm and she swung her purse toward him as hard as she could. She felt the rage inside of her bubble and boil over. She felt the hate that she had had for white men crawl down her arms and sit on her nails. She wanted to scratch this fucker's eyes out. Annie swung her arm back one more time. Her purse flew through the air. The bar flies were laughing and chanting, go, Alex, go. When she heard a voice break into her ears behind her, trouble follows you everywhere, doesn't it? She would recognize that voice anywhere, everywhere, and at any time of day or night. Annie turned and looked into the eyes of Johnny Cochran, the man in this world who hated her most. The man who would be so thrilled to have Moses Henry back to himself. Johnny placed his face in front of Alex's and hissed, Listen, you soft white piece of shit. You leave my woman alone. You white boys need to know your place. Go back to your bar stool. Alex backed up, back to the bar stool that had been his for over five decades. Johnny turned to Annie and smiled. He reached out his hand and nodded. Annie's trembling hand locked with his, and they walked out of the pub together. Once they were outside, Annie started to shake and shake. She couldn't stop herself. She felt the tears welling up into pools in the corner of each eye. And no matter how hard she tried to blink them away, they fell like huge raindrops onto the sidewalk. I'm sorry, Johnny, she said between gasps. I'm so sorry, thank you, Matna. Johnny grinned his timeless grin and asked, you hungry? I know a little place not far from here, closer to the water, and they have the best salmon dinner. I like to call that place Swan Alicious. You've ever been there? I don't go out, Johnny. This is the first time I stepped inside a bar in this place and the last, I'm sorry, I have to go back to my place. I can't eat, I can't think, I have to go. Annie walked up the sidewalk as fast as she could, but Johnny stayed by her side as though he was out for an evening stroll. Johnny stepped out in front of her and did something that Annie thought he would never do. Johnny Cochran wrapped his arms around her shoulders and folded Annie into his chest. She let out the longest howl of sorrow. They created one crooked and sideways anookshook as they cried together on a street filled with tourists. They cried for all the hate they had felt from the world. They cried for all the hate they had had for each other all those years up north. They cried together because they were the two people who knew what it was like to lose the love of Moses Henry. Miigwech, that was just beautiful, Norma. Thank you so much for reading that one, and especially for reading that the excerpt from that story, which is um, so harsh in some ways and, and yet so beautiful. And, and uh, we were talking about survivance earlier. It's really a Annie seems like a bit of a study in survivance and just um, resistance and moving forward. Yes, yeah. 
I will say this, Kateri, that scene in the bar with the white guy, that really did happen to me. And I was just so stunned that anybody, that I would be treated that way and publicly. And um, to have anybody speak to me that way, I was completely stunned. But I mean, here we are in 2021, and that kind of stuff still goes on, and it's wrong. <laughs> it's really wrong. It is. It's it's terrible, and it's um, just completely unforgivable mm-hmm. at this point. Um, thank you so much, and thank you for speaking with me. It's just been a pleasure to hear you read and to talk with you about your work. Thank you. It's great. Thank you, Kateri. I'm glad we got to talk. <laughs> Yes, finally. Thanks so much. That was Kateri Akwenzi Dam in conversation with Dr. Norma Dunning about her new collection of stories, Tahina, the Unseen Ones. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street, but wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. Your financial support will allow us to continue to bring you the world's most interesting authors and thinkers. The podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubé. Kira Harris is our program director and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. I want to thank the Ottawa Public Library, the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. And thank you for listening. <laughs>